0: Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Christocentric, based out of our study on the book of Philippians. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit christianrenewalhhi.org. We're finishing up our series, Christocentric, this morning, our study on the book of Philippians. And so today is the day. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, and we're going to read through Verse 23. Lord, this morning we pray that there would be a greater measure of your presence, of your joy, of your life that would flow upon this house. Make this place a habitation of your presence, God. Be enthroned here, God, as we praise you in our worship and our giving and in our study of your scripture. Come, Jesus, we pray. We love you deeply this morning. Father, as we study this epistle of joy, many call it, we ask that you would just release joy and peace on us again. Give us the joy that Paul experienced, even through the greatest hardships River of God flow through this house, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Somebody say hallelujah, Amen. Hallelujah. He's good this morning. Well, we did a lot of driving this week, as I imagine you did. And so I caught up on all of my podcasts, but I fell behind in all of my reading, if you know what that's like. There was one podcast that I kept thinking about as I thought about um, our text for this morning. And it was a discussion between two Christian uh, musicians who had gone through a season of what many call deconstruction. A um, season of deconstruction means a time where you feel like you're shaken and you're not sure of your beliefs. And so you have to re-examine and re-kind of think through your faith. A period, of, a period of doubt. I think the podcast was clearly alluding to the fact that in recent news, there have been many prominent Christian leaders who have come out and said that they're no longer Christians. Um, so it was kind of trying to explore different people who are going through this. And the first woman that shared her story of deconstructing, this is my quote, deconstructing, um, was Lisa Gunger. You remember, she's the wife of Michael Gunger, who together uh, formed a Christian band rather creatively called Gunger. She shared the story of how she and her husband, Michael, rose to popularity as musicians and they got a job at a mega church. But they began to doubt their faith because they couldn't wrap their minds around suffering, hell. And they were particularly frustrated with the fact that the LGBT community was welcome in their church, but not given a platform to lead. And they saw that as unjust. And at the conclusion of uh, Lisa Gunger's deconstruction phase, she decided that, in her words, all paths lead to the same well. She said that she's still a Christian because she loves Jesus and the kindness he taught. And she began to become a part of a movement that sometimes is called progressive Christianity. Here's my things again. Progressive Christianity. The second woman introduced, uh, his name was Alisa Childers. She was in that band Zoe Girl. Do you guys remember that band in the early 2000s? No, me either. Um, just kidding. I do remember them. Uh, And she and I think I think she said like 2005, she got married and had kids. And um, so the band broke up and they quit doing music. And um, she 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 lived somewhere in Tennessee, somewhere in middle Tennessee, and uh, she got invited to sing at a church. And um, so she went and she sang and her and her new husband fell in love with the church and they loved the people. And so they decided to make this new church their church home. And they were there for some time before the pastor invited uh, Alisa to um, join a special Bible study. And as she, she showed up, she, she, she grew up on the West Coast. Her dad was saved in the uh, Jesus movement. Her mom grew up Pentecostal. And she said she would watch her dad lead worship for hundreds of people, preach Jesus, and then get up in the morning and go to the homeless shelter and sing for 30 or 40 homeless men and preach Jesus. And she said her mom and dad had genuine, sincere faith. And um, she said that, that they, they, weren't, they didn't have this incredibly intellectually driven faith, but they really loved Jesus. And so now this period in her life when she's no longer doing music and she gets invited to this Bible study, and she shows up with her Bible, and she shows up with some notes, and she's ready to study, man. She kind of grew up in a setting like ours. And um, only to find out that she got into the study and realized that the pastor was leading this group and sometimes it was called group deconstruction. And so the pastor was um, told, the, told the group that he actually wasn't a Christian. He was a hopeful agnostic and began to espouse all of his reasons for why he wasn't really a Christian. And he eventually led the church into progressive Christianity, which, again, is this kind of universalism, all roads lead to Rome kind of thing. And uh, Elisa was pretty caught off guard and she um, she left the church. Her and her husband decided to leave the church, but it threw them into a season of trying to understand what they believed and having to wrestle with all of these arguments. And Elisa um, did not become a progressive Christian, but she went to school and studied and became a Christian apologist. And so her season of deconstruction led to her studying people like Ravi Zacharias, um, um, some of the major apologists of our day. And she now runs a ministry that deals with, um, that helps people who are struggling with their faith through apologetics. And she said what she found is that the Christianity is filled with, um, it has a strong history of intellectuals who have always had answers uh, to the big problems of Christianity. Many, Elisa, like many of us, she felt the Holy Spirit draw her to Jesus. She gave her life to Jesus, but she never took a season to wrestle with all of these big, deep philosophical questions that sometimes surround christianity but she said as she took a season to study she realized that there were answers and she discovered that the answers have always been there and christianity from its inception has always had Tertullian, justin martyr augustine aquinas luther's and calvin's brilliant men who had done the research thought through the philosophical issues engaged in real depth and real thought anyone who tells you that christianity is an ignorant faith is rather ignorant Our society is undergirded by brilliant Christians, and even today, the leading, many of the leading psychologists, biologists, philosophers of our day are still Christians, no matter what the schools want to tell you. Christianity is a religion of faith, but it's also true. And if it's true, then it's consistent. I can't argue you into faith. There's a Step of belief but I can make a very strong case for the truthfulness of our claim the historicity of our claim the accuracy and consistency and coherency of the scripture and that's what Elisa began to study so these two women began to interact the conversation to be honest with you really didn't go anywhere The progressive Christian had no answers, only these like broad spiritual claims. She was unwilling to say whether or not Jesus had risen from the dead. Elisa asked her, why would Jesus say I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to me except, comes to the Father except by me? Only for the progressive Christian, Lisa to answer, I don't know. She just kept saying, I feel no need to argue. All roads are beautiful. She doesn't need to argue people into truth anymore. She said she was still a Christian because she loved the kindness and respect that Jesus taught for, for neighbor. Alisa, the apologist, responds that if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, there is no way to consistently call yourself a Christian. That defies every sense of the word's meaning from its historical conception. You can't call yourself a Christian and not believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That completely Destroys the word. And Lisa, the progressive Christian, just kept saying she believed in beauty and love for neighbors. She didn't need to argue. Her goal wasn't to argue people into Christianity, but to let people find their own way and just to be a person of love. And that sounded so spiritual, so mystical and so genuine. She kept, I don't need to argue with you. Your path is beautiful. It sounded so Spiritual, except that it's not spiritual at all. It's a strange thing to say. I love Jesus, but I don't really know if he died for me or was risen from the dead. I wish that we would get back to this argument that C.S. Lewis made. Do you ever remember this argument that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, one or the other? Like the man said, I am God. He healed the sick. He said, if you don't come to me, you cannot come to the Father. He can't just be a good teacher. He's If he's not God, then he's a liar or a lunatic, C.S. Lewis said. Or he's Lord of heaven and earth in your life, too. One of the other picks, C.S. Lewis said, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. I do like cake. Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm in a mood today, y'all. Sorry, I had a little. I had. We. 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 uh We. We evacuated from the storm and went to Pensacola, but I was planning to go to Pensacola anyway for a conference that I felt like the Lord was telling me to go to. And I think the Lord was telling me to go to it for a reason because I had a little bit of Holy Ghost over the last week. I had to get pride up off the floor. Um, so forgive me because I'm in a little bit of a good mood today. And I still like cake. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. Allison is a godly woman. Elisa, the apologist, pointed out rightly that Paul says if Jesus has not risen from the dead, then our faith is pointless. Jesus tells us that we must be born again, that he came to give you abundant life. That if we love Him, He and the Father would come and make their home within you. Jesus said, I will not leave you as an orphan, but I'll send you the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost will abide with you forever. It sounds so spiritual to say, I just love Jesus and I'm not trying to pressure anybody. And I just love His teaching, except for it's not spiritual at all. That idea robs you of the same Spirit which raised Jesus from the dead. Which intends to live in you, make its home in you, and infuse you with a very power of god it is tired weak and powerless for christianity in the west to keep saying we love jesus as a teacher but we don't really know if he raised from the dead he is raised from the dead friend and the power of god wants to infuse you it's not spiritual at all it's tired and weak To honor him as a great leader, but to deny his resurrection is to rob you of the risen Christ, the hope of glory within you. And there are many churches in our day who have made Christianity a mere social justice movement, a, a mere big community service project. And Christianity is about social justice. And the slave trade, just so you know, was abolished by Christians. And the hungry, just so you know, have always been Fed by Christians, and we talked this morning about the Bahamas. And you know who's praying for the Bahamas or the Christians? And I know there will be some who run to the Bahamas who don't know Jesus, but I also know that the vast majority who run to the Bahamas are going to be people who really know and love Jesus, who serve faithfully and selflessly, serving the nations is a part of being a Christian. But Christianity, at its core, is about the death of Jesus, which washed you of your sins, and the resurrection of Jesus, which caused you a sinner to be born again in the power of God and your empty broken tire vessel can be filled infused with the same spirit which raised Jesus from the dead I don't just need social justice Christianity I need the death and resurrection of the risen Christ to infuse me my friend Loving the teaching of Jesus without knowing the person of Jesus is powerless. The danger of raising our kids in the South is that they'll come to know and love and respect the idea of Jesus. And they'll never meet him, man. Why is it that we have Christians falling away from their faith? I suggest that a lot of it's because they never really met him. I can't live the Christian life. To value the ideas of Christianity and to value loving God and loving neighbor and not meet Jesus. I can't do that. I can't really live for Jesus without the spirit of Jesus in me. I want to teach my kids the scripture. I want my kids to know the truth of the gospel. But by God, they've got to know the Jesus of the gospel. By God, they've got to know the power of the Holy Ghost that the gospel promises. It's not enough just to believe intellectually the ideas. We need to taste and see the goodness of Jesus again. Why is Christianity weak in the West? Because we believed ideas, but we haven't met the man. By God, we gotta meet the man again. Seek his face. We have to be sure that our kids and grandkids really encounter the risen Christ. There's a reason why we've got to continue to be a church that really knows and believes this truth and, and is a habitation for the presence of God because we need a generation lit by the fire of God. We need a generation to rise up who really knows the power of the risen Lord, who doesn't just say, I love Jesus, but I don't know if he's raised from the dead. But says, no, I love Jesus because I've met the man. Of course he's risen from the dead otherwise we have no hope christianity was never meant to be lived without the power of the risen jesus dwelling deep within my rib cage out of my belly will flow rivers of living water the man promised me come to me all you who are weary i will give you rest he promised me rest Jesus is not alive and well this morning, I'll never make it. But if I make it, it will only be because Jesus is alive and well this morning. No, Christianity without a risen Jesus is not Christianity at all. It's moralism. It's tired. It's powerless. We need resurrection power in our midst. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God that causes me to be born again into a new creation. That power does something to me, man. Our message is not just come enjoy our moralism. Let us tell you how to live. Our message is that the power of God will do something to you. It'll change you. It will cause you to be born again. Our message is you are dead, but by God, you can be made alive because Jesus got up out of the grave, man. It's been my point throughout this series to show you that Paul lived a life that was fueled only by the presence of God. Not by religious pride. Paul didn't live for religious pride. He tells us in Philippians chapter three. Religious pride is all rubbish. It's all garbage. Paul didn't live to become rich. It wasn't like wealth was his chief aim. He's sitting in jail saying how blessed it is to know God. It wasn't about being rich. Paul wasn't driven by selfish ambition, he tells us in Philippians chapter 1. He said, no, there are some people who preach the gospel out of selfish ambition. But, but no, that wasn't what Paul lived for. Paul lived to know and experience the power of the risen Jesus and to preach the gospel of God, which would cause people to raise from the dead to the nations. That's what he lived for, to really know Jesus. By God, that's what I want to live for. The secret to Paul's strength, his love, and his perseverance, even in the worst of scenarios, is the risen Christ, alive and well, deep within his ribcage. Now let's read the scripture. Paul, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Ephoditis the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me, they greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, just in case you're jumping in in our series, this is the bad day to jump in because we're closing up here or unfamiliar with the context of our passage today, let me fill you in on just a few details. Paul in Philippians chapter 1 tells us that he's in prison. We assume from the text we read today that Paul in prison has been hungry, without food, without supplies. We know from Philippians chapter 1 and chapter 2 that there's a possibility that Paul will be executed at the conclusion of the trial that he's waiting for. He tells the Philippians, I'm not sure whether I'll live or die, but to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we know from context that Paul is hungry, tired, alone, and possibly facing death. Yet all throughout this epistle, he is optimistic, hopeful, and still passionately in love with Jesus. The Philippian church has sent him aid while he was in prison. And here he's thanking them for their support. We assume they sent him food, money, clothing. He tells the Philippian church he's very proud of them for selflessly serving him. And he's so thankful for their gifts. He's blessed by their love for him. But he wants them to know that he has learned the secret of facing plenty and the secret of facing hunger. He says he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Haley and I were driving yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. And I was making her read me this text in different translations. And we read a few. And after a while, I asked her to read the message paraphrase to me. I, I like Eugene Peterson. And she said that she didn't like the message paraphrase because it sounded so different than the literal, the literal translation, the translation that we all memorized. And she was right about that. My wife's not right about much, but she was right about that. Just kidding. <laughs> she ain't here this morning, so I'm allowed to say it. She said, Whew. Y'all don't tell her I said that, okay? And I told her I liked the way Eugene Peterson translated the verse because it bears the weight of the context on the phrasing. We've made Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The motto for like our sports uniforms and our, um, our future goals. We just put that text anywhere. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I used to play basketball with a guy who was like 5'6". And he would try to dunk and he would say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to dunk. And you know he never could dunk. Unless Christ strengthened him to lower the goal to about seven foot, that boy wasn't dunking. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrased that line this uh, like this. Whatever I have, whatever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me what I am. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything. It's really the heart of what Paul's saying. I'm in prison, alone, hungry, tired. I can make it, man, through Christ who gives me strength. Not the modern Christian thing of like, I could fly if I wanted to. I'm going flap my arms real hard and I can fly. You ain't going to fly. Paul's saying, I can make it through anything in the face of death. Death is knocking on my front gate and I'm, I persevere through Jesus who gives me strength. Peterson para- paraphrased, I can make it through this hell through him who makes me strong. First, in order to put your mind around what Paul's saying here, the resurrection of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Ghost changes everything. alive and well Jesus indwells our hearts through the Holy Spirit and gives us strength. Why does it matter that we still cling to the historic Christian faith? First, because it's true and we believe in truth. Second, because a Messiah who is still in the grave is no Messiah at all. We need transformation. We need courage. We need strength And we have it in the risen Jesus who overflows with power. His strength cannot be contained. And his compassion for me moves heaven and hell to rescue me in my times of trouble. I've been peddling my way through several books. But Corey Tim Boom's book, A Prisoner. And yet, um, it's like the hiding place. It tells the story of their trial. The book title comes from a line where Corrie ten Boone writes in a German concentration camp. She says this, it was dark in my cell. I talked with my Savior. Never before had fellowship with him been so close. It was a joy I hoped would continue unchanged. I was a prisoner and yet how free. That's the heart of what Paul was saying. You must know today that he is alive, man. And he is able to make the dimmest, darkest prison cell come alive with glory. When you feel abandoned by those you trusted the most, he stands at your side. When no one speaks to you, they turn the other way. You can still hear the voice of our risen Savior whispering when you feel like life is crumbling and your knees are surely going to give, you can be sure that the power of Jesus will well up within you because the man is alive this morning. Paul says, I have the strength to endure even this darkest night because Jesus is alive. I have strength because the risen Jesus dwells within me. The promise of the New Testament is not that you'll never have to endure hardship. Jesus says, in this life, you will have trouble. The promise of the New Testament is that you will never endure hardship alone. The promise of the New Testament is that Jesus would send the Holy Ghost. The promise of the New Testament is that he would be with you. Lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. The promise of the New Testament is not that God will never allow you to walk through times and things that you are not strong enough to bear. That is not a promise of the New Testament that you will not walk through things that you're not strong enough to carry. We say that all the time to one another. God will not allow you to walk through something you're not strong enough for. That's not true at all. First Corinthians 10, 13 says, God won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. God will not allow you to be tempted with sin in such a way that you can't stand. It doesn't say that God will never allow you to walk through seasons that break you. I'm not strong enough to do a lot of things God asked of me. The promise is that even in the seasons where we're totally broken, weak and tired, we will be supplied with strength by the risen Jesus. The promise is not that I will have within me this endurance and this perseverance and this strength that I am going to be strong. The promise is that in my weakness, I will be made strong. The promise is that I can do all things. I can sustain even the very pressing of hell through the strength of Jesus, not through my own strength. There may be times when you feel like what you're walking through is heavy and too much for you. And I hate to tell you that there will be days where it will be too much for you. But it's not too much for the one who walks with you. You keep standing. Or better yet, keep leaning. Almost every commentator I read this week mentioned that in Paul's day, uh, there was this idea that to be a man was to be stoic. To be stoic meant that you were you were strong and you found strength within look within yourself and come out strong. And Paul is playing with that idea here. He says, I am strong, not because of what I carry within myself, but because of what I carry within myself. I'm strong because who's in me. So the question for me then becomes, what does strength look like to Paul. If Paul is able to endure even the darkest hell as he sits alone, tired, and hungry, and waiting for uh, a, a trial that may bring his death, yet rejoice, what, is, what does strength look like for Paul? I think he told us that strength looks like extreme contentment. Whether he has plenty or whether he has nothing at all, Paul says he's okay. The King James says, whether he abounds or is abased, brought low. As I've thought, I've concluded that Paul's contentment was found in intimacy with Jesus alone. When the chief desire of your heart is to commune with Jesus, you can become content even in prison. Because even in prison, you can commune with Jesus If you're single and your heart's longing is for a husband or for a wife, but you're still single, then you'll be discontent. If your heart's desire is wealth, but you broke, then your heart is discontent. If your deepest longing is for peace and quiet, and you live in a house filled with little girls, then you are discontent. (laughs) But when you really desire to know Jesus... You can be hungry and still be content. You can be full and be content. When your deepest desire is to taste and see Jesus. When you set your life's aim to seek his face. then even when all of hell is raining down on you, you can be content because you can still have him in the midst of all of hell. In the midst of everything demonic principalities throw at me, I still have him. Paul says he's content while he prospers. Sometimes prosperity only drives you to want more things. Paul says, when I have plenty, it's not the plenty that I'm living for, it's still intimacy with Jesus. So I'm able to be content. things happening outside and either make or break him because he lives in daily communion with God. As this season in my life changes and it keeps changing, boy, I've thought a lot about what it means to have a daily burn for God. As a husband, as a father, you know, my life is spent cleaning up after little girls, man, and they're they're messy. I don't have as much time to sit and soak, not like I Used to, and I'm tired because I don't sleep, and so I can't stay up all night like I used to. I can, but it only makes me more miserable. And in the past, I had these bouts of passion, man, these energetic, passionate moments where I loved and trusted Jesus, and I'm still energetic and passionate, but I've thought a lot this week about what it means to have a slow burn, a daily burn. I felt like God was saying, Caleb, in this season, you got to learn to be a slow cooker. To burn daily and systematically. I really think Paul lived a slow, systematic, daily, hot love for Jesus. And if strength is found in intimacy, then it becomes crucial that you dwell upon the cross of Jesus and God's perfect expression of his passionate love for you. If the strength to endure even the darkest hell is found in intimacy, you have to be so sure that the Father really loves you this morning. I know you're tired. I know things sometimes feel like they're crumbling. But you have to breathe and remind yourself that the God who holds the worlds in his hands, he loves you violently and passionately. So many times when we're facing hardship, we're told you need to pray harder. You need to pray more, pray harder. And sometimes you do need to pray harder but sometimes I feel so worn out that I don't have the strength to pray for strength. I'm mumbling, God, give me the strength to get up and pray for strength because I don't have any strength to get up. And every hardship I face, I'm told is spiritual warfare and you need to fight, and I'm sure it is. Sometimes I don't have the strength to fight. It's always wise to get people around you and say, pray for me. But sometimes the best spiritual warfare I got it's to sit my butt on the floor and say, Jesus, I love you. Say, Jesus, you're good. Sometimes I sit my butt on the floor and I say, Jesus, I know I have strength to fight, but by God, you are so beautiful and wonderful and majestic. And I'm telling you that, that intimacy sometimes is the best spiritual warfare. You know, when I get to kissing my wife, my kids don't really want to be around for all that. That's how the demons feel. When you get to loving on Jesus, they don't want to see that. Hallelujah. I think in your moments of trial, there is strength as you just sit. You just worship. You might not have the strength for big proclamations. Sometimes I'm too tired to quote scripture. I just sit and say, I love you. You're so good. And you start to just allow the peace of God to settle in the room. Sometimes I just remember the scripture saying, be still and know that I'm God. And you just rest in God. Everything around me feels like it's falling apart. But I know that I know that I know that you love me. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit christianrenewalhhi.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.